Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Keith Block and host Michael Lerner, co-presented with Cancer Choices, titled Life Over Cancer, a new model of integrative cancer treatment. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Uh, As Michael said, I'm Kira Epstein. I'm the co-director at the New School of Commonweal. Today, in collaboration with Commonweal's Cancer Choices Program, we are so pleased to host Dr. Keith Block in conversation with our host, Michael Lerner, and some of the Cancer Choices team. This conversation is part of our co-presented series of conversations with the Cancer Choices Program, and there are many, many recordings you can listen to. You can find all of them on both of our websites, tns.commonweal.org and cancerchoices.org, and on the New School's media pages. We have YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. I'm ready to turn it over to you, Michael. Have a good conversation. Thank you, Kira. Keith, welcome back. Uh, Such a beloved friend. Uh, We've been in the field together for close to 40 years, I think. You are the founder and medical director of the Block Center uh, in Evanston, Illinois, or close to Evanston. And you've been doing this extraordinary work for decades, really uh, one of the great pioneers of integrative or whole person cancer care. And so many people have now come into the field, but you remain um, almost without parallel uh, among the the greatest authorities. Uh, You and your wife and partner, Kenny Block, uh, lead your team of cancer professionals that provide a different approach to cancer that emphasizes life, individualized treatment, and a multifaceted approach. And... um, As you say on your website, uh, the integrative cancer treatment has become almost a a catchphrase, but it rarely is truly integrated. And at the Block Center, that's what you do. So uh, it's a great honor to have you here. And I think the first question is, what is, uh, uh, well, let me start here. How did you end up at the Block Center? And what does the model of life over cancer look like? You know, I got into this probably as many of you have. Uh, cancer hit me and my family uh, before I was born. Uh, and I had a cousin uh, who is my aunt and uncle traveled with uh, around the United States uh, to different institutions and stuff who uh, sadly did not survive. Um between my eighth and 16th birthday, I lost several cancer, uh, several relatives to cancer. Uh, my grandmother was diagnosed when I was uh, minus 11, if you can be minus 11. And she recurred when I was 14, a full 25 years later. Yeah, cancer stem cells is my opinion, but she was robust, outspoken, and dynamic. And uh, at the hospital, my parents uh, brought me. She was debilitated. She was depleted. She was diminished. She was in despair. And no one dealt with her diet, her fitness, her social support, or her hope. Um, I was a bit precocious, as you might guess, and um, chewed my parents out the whole way home. 
Um, I'd say it's not an accident that I ended up here. Uh, so maybe that kind of answers your question in, in that regard. And, um, you know, for uh, what it's worth, integrative uh, treatment didn't even exist in 1980 when Penny and I opened up our clinic. In fact, the word integrative wasn't even part of our lexicon. Um, I was seeing patients from two different camps. Uh, conventional patients came to see me who uh, often were responding favorably to treatment, uh, but struggled with adverse effects. And uh, uh, alternative uh, patients, you know, were referred to me or came to me. Um, in those days, I was uh, deeply involved in uh, macrobiotics, and it was fairly well known by that community. Um, and they, most of those patients claimed to feel quite well but their cancers were progressing. So I introduced complementary treatments uh, to the conventional group and the conventional group, uh, you know, to, or the conventional care to alternative patients. And uh, it worked. Both groups seemed to do better. Uh, ironically, one of my most important mentors, uh, bless his soul, Dr. Robert Mendelssohn, advised me he says keith if you stand in the middle of the road you'll get hit by cars on both sides mm. so what did i do i built a career in the middle of the road <laughs> and yep believe me i have been hit by cars on both sides many a time Absolutely. And i have learned really you know virtually every day of clinical work and practice which has really been a gift um that uh really from patients the middle ground is the optimal ground um, that bridging these systems together is really um, something that uh, really respects the uh, humanity of a patient. Um, and it uh, acknowledges the sacredness of healing and taking care of patients. And simultaneously, I believe these tools have enormous relevance, but lack a certain degree of uh, innovation and We'll talk about it, but kind of a uh, multi-targeting, a uh, pleiotropism, if you will. And what is your uh, what is the life over cancer model look like? How do you describe uh, what you do at the Block Center? Well, let me say what I don't do first, uh, just very quickly. Um, what is not integrative cancer treatment is alternative medicine. Uh, defined uh, as in lieu of conventional cancer treatment. Um, data demonstrates uh, if a patient chooses a strictly alternative route, you actually see a significant increase in mortality. Um, even if a patient skips a single core conventional intervention, that's what people would call you know, uh, the guidelines or standard of care, even skipping one, surgery, chemo, hormonal therapy, radiation therapy, that's enough to still increase significantly mortality. So while we've all heard of a patient or two, and we all have, that went on an alternative route and recovered, after doing this for well over 40 years now, I will tell you, please, please, Make no mistake, this is the exception, not the rule. That 
this idea that we can disregard either one of these camps, if you will, um, is, uh, in my opinion, uh, a, a very serious mistake. The second part of it is this CAM is also not integrative. Complementary alternative medicine is lovely. It sounds lovely. It's most often a single intervention add-on, kind of like yoga and breast cancer or green tea and prostate cancer. It may help, but it's not integrative cancer treatment. Institutions introduce single add-ons for research purposes because really it's it's the model it's what the fda wants no con confounding variables no muddy water simple clean studies that you can make a claim at the end of the day and i, I i'll hit the other side too independent cancer centers that will implement an add-on or two massage music therapy it, it it's very feel good it it's great in many ways from my perspective that it's a step in the right direction. It's a little clever and creative from a marketing perspective, but at the end of the day, likely uh, it's only going to have a minimal clinical impact. It's not going to have the kind of impact that I think you can have by really augmenting the best of both worlds by bringing them together in a very... Uh, systematic and comprehensive way that really respects the biology, the science, and the patient. Yeah, we call that integrative cancer care light, like a light beer, you know. <laughs> that, you know, the and on, I mean, on the one hand, the good news is that almost every major cancer center has some kind of integrative care program. And when you and I started, they they had none. Uh, so that's the good news. They're adding but very often, as you say, those additions are good for marketing and they people make people feel good, but they really don't scratch the surface of what a true integrative program looks like. Great. Yeah. So your question is, is kind of what, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, and I would uh, pick up my computer and turn around and show you my office, but everybody's gone. And I don't know if I'd get rehooked up right, and so well, let's not do that. Then. We'll do that today. But uh, um, on some levels, uh, we look more like a spa than uh, an oncology center. Um, we have uh, oncology trained nurses, uh, a medical oncology team. Um, we have a full pharmacy. Our pharmacy does way more than mix cancer drugs. We mix a whole variety of natural products, uh, IV, um, oral agents. Uh, we have a full system that's based on uh, really three significant, um, what I refer to, uh, what we refer to as spheres, um, the uh, biographical component, uh, who you are, how you live, how you take care of yourself, who your immediate other is, um, bringing all of these tools really together um, with a, a considerable amount of uh, respect for um, the, the, the care and the etab, uh, establishment of relationships. Um, uh, my book, uh, Life Over Cancer, is really a, a roadmap to cancer recovery and um, establishing bio, bio, I'm sorry, 
biographical integrity um, is really relevant. How we live, how we eat, how we take care of ourselves is fundamental. Um, cancer recovery demands uh, motivation to achieve optimal wellness and really every facet of care. Um, some of you will remember these things maybe, um, but in 2005, uh, a very famous researcher in nutrition, Klebowski, um, even today, uh, patients see me and still, you know, uh, talk about this, uh, that uh, they, they're advised, um, the patients will tell me that, you know, their doctors have told them that diet doesn't matter. Um, but he did a study that he presented in front of 5,000 people at the annual meeting for the American Society for Clinical Oncology in 2005. And there were um, 2,400 plus postmenopausal breast cancer patients. And if they lowered their fat to below 20%, which matches our nutritional program, um, there was a 24% reduction in breast cancer recurrence. That's comparable to many drugs, including tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors. So that is not, you know, without clinical relevance uh, by any means. And yet, I would say nothing has changed. Um, even now, 18 years later, I would say that, you know, maybe a very small handful of uh, cancer specialists in the United States will address not just with uh, breast cancer, but with colon cancer, with kidney cancer, with lung cancer patients, how relevant and important the foundation of proper eating really is. Our second area, and, you know, I believe me, can talk for hours on each one of these, but establishing um, biological integrity, if you will, or really what I would today calls the extracellular environment, getting that micro environment optimized. Um, you uh, probably appreciate seed and soil. Um, seed and soils existed since uh, discussions back in the Ming Dynasty, uh, dates back thousands of years. But I think I was among the uh, very first to put laboratory uh, tests and a full treatment system in place to transform what I called back in the 1970s and early 80s, the uh, biochemical and metabolic terrain. Um, it would take 20 plus years for the pharma research oncology community to refer to it as the tumor microenvironment. But we were talking very similar uh, with regards to things like inflammation, oxidation, glycemia, hyperinsulinemia, immune suppression uh, or depression, and stress chemistry, coagulopathy. Um, take coagulopathy. I kind of get some of you scratching your head saying, coagula who? Um, coagulopathy is stickiness, blood clotting. And we know that the challenges of cancer, usually patients do not succumb from malignancy at all. In fact, it's a very rare event, but rather from complications, life-threatening complications. An example of that is blood clots that turn into moving thrombi and emboli. And so from a challenge perspective, 
it's really relevant to deactivate and deaggregate platelets. Well, your platelets are there to create clots. But believe it or not, your platelets, I refer to them as drills and shields. They will drill a hole from the basement membrane, think of the basement of your house, and that you need to get into the uh, water and gas lines. But in this case, I'm going to refer to it as the rivers of the body, your blood and lymph system. And cancer cells want to spread, and they do that by activating platelets to drill a hole. And now the cancer cells can migrate from that basement membrane into the rivers of the body. And the platelets come with them, and what the platelets then do is they act as a shield, and they actually will wall off, the, kind of creating you know, a, a wall around the cancer cells. And now the cancer cell can migrate through the system, find a new place to dock, and now, um, uh, I guess we would use the word in, in science, extravate. They would actually leave the vessel and now enter tissue and find a new home, and that's how metastatic sites develop. And yet, if we give the right diet, the right control of stresses, we sleep well, we stay optimally fit, we take the right compounds, we can deactivate and deaggregate platelets, first making it harder for those cells to ever breach into the rivers of the body, and second, so that the platelets don't act as a shield, leaving the cells that do make it into the rivers of the body exposed and thus far more vulnerable in terms of uh, cancer uh, uh, killing effects from one's immune system and various lymphocytes and white blood cells and natural killer cells. So there's real evidence in varieties of ways, and I can even maybe uh, through the talk, give you some patient examples um, where getting the soup, if you will, this terrain, this microenvironment, so it is inhospitable to cancer instead of supporting cancer. Um, and what happens is the cancer cells and the cancer tumors will hijack the terrain for their own purposes. As a patient, we have to hijack that back. And so we do laboratory testing, very extensive laboratory testing, and we let a patient's targets tell us what to do to fix that environment so it's cancer-fighting instead of cancer-promoting. The third area, just to you know, kind of close the loop a little bit on this, is um, moving more toward um, uh, establishing uh, a pathological resolution, if you will. Um, what we would really uh, today call kind of the intracellular biology. And the intracellular biology um, is be, has become quite relevant. Uh, in around 1998, I took one of our research associates off of other projects, and we started working on a massive digital library because I believed at that time that we were going to be where we are today. 
I can give you just a little sidebar here. I'm not exact in terms of my numbers, so don't count. But we all have, oh, somewhere around 26,000 genes. And of those 26,000 genes, we probably have about 8,000 that have some relationship to cancer. We would all say that's not why they're there. But whatever the case, uh, they have some relationship. We actually only know how to test about 2,500, but that would only be if we could coordinate every research lab on the planet to work together. As a routine, you can run lab tests in one of the, what I call big five in the US, and on tissue, you can get about 650 targets looking at these genes to determine are they mutational um, and are they helping or hurting. And we can measure somewhere between 80 and 120 from what's called a liquid biopsy, looking at the DNA. And all of that is said to tell you that we only have about 50 drugs that are actually approved. So you can kind of see we started out here at 26,000 to 8,000 to 2,500 to 650, you know, and you can see the 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 problem, right? And and I recognized this problem very strongly and early on saying that we needed to start to build therapies that weren't only using conventional drugs, but would allow for multi-targeting. I have a very, very strong opinion about cancer, that it is not about a bullet or two. It's not about one bullet or two for one bullseye or two, but cancer is a multi-bullseye, dozens and dozens and dozens, whether you want to talk about the extracellular environment, the intracellular environment, there's an enormous biology in terms of complexity that needs to be addressed in patients. And it so happens that compounds like curcumin and resveratrol and various uh, agents are somewhat pleiotropic. They have the ability to multi-target. These compounds um, grow in nature. If we date back to around the 1940s, 1950s, the pharma world was really proud of itself that they could make a pure drug. And a pure drug works somewhat fantastically well for certain kinds of diseases. But when it comes to cancer, actually, we may benefit from drugs that are not so pure, that have the ability to multi-target, since I believe one of the great gaping holes in cancer care, and one of the reasons we haven't been successful is because we don't methodically, systematically, comprehensively analyze all of what's driving a particular patient's disease, and then methodically go after each and every one of those bullseyes with strategies that don't hurt, that are not overly costly, um, and that can be bridged with interaction screening with mainstream drugs that have, you know, and we'll always have far more data behind them because they have far more money to run that type of research. Now that's really helpful, Keith. So could you give us an update on outcomes of your work with circadian health, antioxidants, uh, chemotherapy, and integrative chronochemotherapy 
with, say, breast cancer survival, uh, both with primary breast cancer and also metastatic. What, what have you seen over the years with breast cancer, both primary and metastatic, in terms of survival? So before I get there, let me start where you started in the circadian health. I'm going to do something that's probably inappropriate in a, a discussion, but... No, that's great. The, the diagram. So what this is, is this is looking at um, a group of different cancers, yeah. um, actually five, but we're looking at um, two uh, uh, colorectal cancer uh, study groups. And we're looking at ovarian, lung, non-small cell, renal, kidney, metastatic breast, and two colorectal. And this entire um, study uh, demonstrates that cancer patients with pain on admission demonstrated 4.6 times greater likelihood of dying if their circadian clock was disrupted. And what this is showing is, is it's showing that the difference of survival of these patients, a 20 to 30% difference as to whether or not um, you are robust in your circadian clock or uh, disrupted. So yes, we actually do a considerable amount of testing uh, with patients. We assess all of our patients' uh, circadian health um, and then work intensively hard on fixing it. So we also ran a pretty impressive study. Um, it was uh, 30 patients. Uh, it was meant to be a pilot study. Uh, we used 30, um, I'm sorry, uh, stage three and four chemotherapy patients um, with solid tumors um, from our patient population that had had heavily chemotherapy treatment, pretreatment, even before walking into our door. And we then assess them uh, in, in very careful um, uh, tools that are used in the industry, the Pittsburgh sleep uh, questionnaire, uh, the symptoms, uh, EORTC, the ORTS. Um, we looked at um, uh, quality of life uh, in these patients uh, and survival data. And I just give you a little bit of kind of what, what I think is really fascinating um, kind of clinical results with this. The correlation of a better rhythm predicting longer survival, the two, we, we compared to three groups. We compared to a colorectal cancer group that was stage one through three. We looked at a breast cancer population that was stage one through three compared to our stage three and four population. And we looked at a healthy population that had no cancer and no serious illness whatsoever. And the 24-hour correlation in terms of rhythm regularity, our group, stage four, stage three, four, more advanced, was nearly twofold better than the two cancer groups and comparable to the healthy group. The sleep quality index, the Pittsburgh sleep analysis, we were 60% better than the um, uh, non-stage 3-4 group. And our symptoms assessment looked at insomnia, appetite loss, and constipation and pain. We matched, I'm going to try to show this to you. I don't know if you'll be able to see that. 
Okay, so um, this is us right here. And the first three symptoms I told you were zero, zero, zero. And that's exactly what the healthy population. This mm -hmm. is a stage three and four cancer population, advanced cancer population. And these are all zeros, um, you know, with the healthy population here. So we matched them. These are the two earlier stage groups, stage one through three uh, populations. And they actually suffered significantly symptomatically. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Keith Block and host Michael Lerner. Now, I will tell you that pain, our group number was 16.6. .6, the colon was 36.5, more than double. The breast cancer group was 39.0, more than double. The healthy group beat us, zero, but the healthy group didn't have cancer. So, so we, we actually are really convinced that one's, the term that's been used, oh gosh, for 100 years, um, maybe 150 years, a guy by the name of James Coates uh, talked about this many years ago, that one's performance status one's wellness really the way we define it today is activities of daily living it's an inadequate uh, measure in my opinion but nonetheless um he talked about this and many other people have talked about it that it may be more important our wellness our resilience in all of these different categories of muscle mass and aerobics and um you know just uh, really uh, you know, meditation and breath work and flexibility and, um, you know, being happy, um, that that foundation may be far more important than what drugs we give somebody. And that's very profound. And, and we uh, at Cancer Choices um, put a very strong emphasis on precisely that, uh, what we call seven healing practices uh, we follow you on terrain, on the optimizing terrain. So um, we very strongly support that direction. Sleeping well is one of the key dimensions of seven healing practices. So uh, uh, so in terms of uh, outcomes, you've just talked about um, one facet of outcomes, but I think people would like to know if they have breast cancer, uh, let's just take that among many, uh, either primary or metastatic, and they come to the block center or do uh, a, a telephonic consult with you and follow your program closely at home as much as they can, um, what happens to their uh, quality of life, uh, time to recurrence, and survival? Um. So we actually had published data around this um, um, because I don't have with me right now the the prostate one. It's it's quicker, and I'll give it to you. The breast one is a little more time consuming, and I think more valuable to cover. But I do want to tell you we we um, studied twenty seven men with metastatic stage four at the time. It would have been called stage D two. Um, just different nomenclature, um, with spread to the bones or other organs. Um, and we studied 27 of them, 
Um, they all received conventional hormonal therapy as well as other prostate cancer medications. In addition, they all followed our program. We looked at the survival times from the time their metastatic disease was diagnosed. Um, our numbers would have been way higher if we looked from the time that they were initially diagnosed with, an, in many cases, an earlier stage prostate cancer. Um, we compared them with four different populations of metastatic um, or more localized prostate cancer uh, groups. Um, the patients at other centers averaged a survival of 30 months. At the block center, our patients averaged a survival of 60 months. In other words, they survived twice as long as the patients treated only with standard conventional medications. 50% of the men were alive five years after diagnosis. 20% of them went on to live beyond 10 years. Um, some of them completely clear, some of them still with active metastatic disease that we were able to control and contain. So we, we really did pretty well. I mean, it was a pretty impressive kind of impact. Let's talk about breast cancer. Um, but before so, you go to breast cancer, yeah, sure. um, prostate cancer, I mean, Dean Ornish did work along similar lines, and there's been work by others. Is it fair to say that among the solid tumors that prostate cancer is sort of the poster child of the cancer that is known to do best uh, with integrative therapies appropriately applied or not? It's always seemed to me that that's the one where one can say with some confidence to prostate cancer patients, uh, this, this makes a demonstrable difference. And several different researchers have found that to be true. Would you agree with that or not? I do agree with that, Michael. Um, a very famous uh, physician out of Canada named Ferdinand Labrie, an endocrinologist researcher, um, studied both prostate and uh, breast cancers when he was alive. And he um, ran the very first uh, study of on flutamide. Uh, the drug has evolved into a, a little bit different, but it was a, a prostate cancer drug. Um, I was one of 39 U.S. physicians who participated in it. And Labrie said, and even uh, communicated with me about this, that he believed our diet and lifestyle interventions changed our patient load compared to the other 38 physicians dramatically, that they were not pumping adrenaline and steroids and, you know, uh, cortisol and chemicals that, you know, unfortunately both can be immunosuppressive as well as um, setting patients up for, you know, more aggressive disease. Um, and uh, he felt that the same was true uh, for breast cancer um, and that uh, any disease that was influenced by hormones. But I would kind of argue one little step further, and that is, is that um, th there is a degree of growth stimulation that can occur from almost any kind of hormonal uh, you know, effect that may even just be stress chemistry, even for a tumor that is not, you know, believed to be, uh, you know, highly, uh, uh, filled with receptors for, you know, different hormones and things. So, but let, let me tell you, so this was our breast cancer uh, population. I'll, I'll show you, uh, I think I have it around here somewhere. 
yeah, I have a visual uh, I'll show you in a second. But so we followed 90 consecutive patients. By the way, this is published in the Breast Journal. Um, and actually, the head of uh, research out of MD Anderson uh, in breast cancer uh, for the last many years, a really lovely guy who was uh, running UCSF's uh, uh, breast cancer unit, uh, Dr. Debu Tripathi. No, we know him well. Yes. Wonderful man. Yeah. Yes. Co-authored uh, with us. Oh, wonderful. And reviewed all of our data independently. Um, anyhow, we followed 90 consecutive patients with advanced metastatic breast cancer, diagnosed over a 13-year period. Um, they received from us chronomodulated chemotherapy uh, and a very aggressive, uh, not invasive, aggressive, integrative and nutritional treatment. Um, we uh, followed their records and followed them clinically and determined prognostic factors like hormonal receptor status, their conventional treatments, how long they survive from one time, from the time they develop metastatic disease. Their medium age at the time of metastases was 46 years old, in which many of you probably recognize that this is younger than most breast cancer patients. So our average um, uh, patient at that time uh, was younger and employ, Im implies a much greater mortality risk. 96% um, of our patients had relapsed into advanced disease before seeing us. So they were already stage four advanced disease uh, before they walked in our doors. We compared their survival with that of breast cancer patients in a few other studies that were comparable to our population. Our 90 advanced breast cancer patient population's median survival was 38 months. A median survival means that's when you're at the 50% mark. 50% of the patients are no longer alive. 50% are. And it's a very stable number used in uh, research statistics. Throughout our study period, the 1990s, the median survival reported in metastatic breast cancer trials generally ranged from 12 to 18 months, with just a couple of uh, uh, studies that went 21, 22, and 23 months. Um, uh, none of them reached uh, our 38 months our five-year survival was 27% um, from the center, and the comparison groups all added up, uh, matched up to about 17%, uh, despite a higher proportion of younger and relapsed patients, a much more advanced group. Um, uh, so for advanced and younger patients, with thus a higher risk and a uh, worse expected prognosis, our patients in the study even today in 2023 have still among the best survivals for advanced metastatic breast cancer. This is actually that data. Um, a little hard to see. Um, and um, the median survival is right here, and that's how you kind of determine off of the Kaplan-Meier, uh, the 38-month median survival in this patient population. Um, this is us. And each one of these is colored based on what the metastatic site was, um, or the couple of metastatic sites. Green is bone, lung is blue, liver, and visceral. Um, and you can see the other groups that we looked at 
Um, the Munich group, right where my finger is, is the SEER data. It's the major data that's used as comparison across the globe and has for many decades now. Um, there was a Louisiana, Louisiana group and a Texas group as well. And you can see it even when you match up to the particular metastatic site, none of them come close to the uh, survival of our patient population. Um, you, would think it would have been, you would think it would have been easy for us to have gotten funded uh, by uh, you know, various institutions and stuff um, after this kind of data. Um, not the case uh, whatsoever. Just so you know, three-year survival percentages on the group, that uh, um, 9% uh, were alive in one of the trials, one of the groups that I just showed you, 28% in another, and 30% in the uh, Louisiana uh, group. And our group was 52%. So we pretty much came close to doubling the rest of the population. Uh, with that, this is really one of those patients. She's still alive today. Um, she's uh, out um, since uh, 1999. Um, so she's 24 years out. Uh, she's uh, alive and well and uh, uh, free of disease uh, and has done very well um, and still stays in close contact with us. So, oh, Keith, if, if that's true, this is. If that's true for prostate cancer and breast cancer, including metastatic breast cancer, what about the implications for the other so-called fat-related cancers like colon and ovarian? In other words, are those two poster children for a broader uh, set of uh, solid tumors uh, that are epidemiologically said to be fat-related or uh, industrial civilization related? I believe so. If you look at the research, doesn't matter whether you're looking at preclinical research or clinical research. I think, you know, the, the data supports it. Unfortunately, you know, you have to run the trials to, you know, really prove it. And this is not an arena that is well-funded. Um, what about blood cancers? Um, different. Uh, I would tell you that um, there's a complete different uh, approach that one would take for, say, childhood leukemias and uh, different childhood cancers uh, than adults. Um, I work with a large number of uh, CLL patients, chronic lymphocytic uh, lymphoma or leukemia. Um, and as many of you may or may not know, CLL over time morphs into SLL, um, small lymphocytic lymphoma. So it starts off as a uh, blood cancer and it uh, slowly morphs into uh, kind of a lymph cancer that is more solid. And I actually believe very strongly that the biology is very similar, not in the early uh, stages, but in the later stages. And our responses with patients uh, seem to uh, uh, follow uh, a very similar kind of pattern that we see with solid tumors. But it, it, broadly speaking, would you say you do as well with uh, blood cancers as you do with the solid tumors? Or is there a difference in what you see? So we don't actually see until late in the game yeah. some of the uh, really uh, crisis-related acute lymphoblastic uh, types of uh, lymphomas and some of these uh, 
patients will come into our door um, under the guise that they thought they had, you know, some kind of blood disorder and we didn't know what it was. And I can remember, uh, um, you know, practically uh, putting a patient into my car and driving them to Northwestern to a colleague of mine because the patient needed acute therapy uh, in a unit you know, right away. And the patient's still alive about, about 15 years ago. Um, so not all cancers um, are, uh, all, all, you know, uh, blood cancers are kind of easy to treat in an outpatient uh, clinical setting. But I brought up chronic uh, lymphocytic leukemia because the, um, uh, my experience uh, has uh, grown considerably um, a uh, gentleman who wrote a book um, uh, and uh, acknowledges uh, me as his doctor. Uh, the book is called N of One, and his name is Glenn. C. Yeah, important and, book. Yes, and um, so we we designed an entire regimen and uh, really did a full analysis on CLL. Um, uh, along with uh, one of my research staff, uh, Charlotte, did a very deep dive, and we did a, a really full analysis on all the me mechanisms and targets that uh, CLL uses um, before we introduced a uh, full program uh, for him. Um, it didn't reverse his disease for about 15 months. It took a while, uh, but he eventually completely reversed his disease. And um, in the book, uh, he acknowledges uh, his um, pr probably the at least for a number of years, if not still today, uh, a Dr. Nadler, um, uh, Dana Farber, um, possibly the the best uh, funded researcher in CLL in the world, and he acknowledged that Glenn's case to him appears as if he has cured his disease, that there's no evidence of disease, and that he had never really actually seen that before i actually have a number of patients that we've been able to put into remission uh with cll but um you know these things uh, are always they, they require a certain degree of humility and uh, humbleness and uh yet um i'm not so sure that that's how you get funded i think sometimes you need to be really aggressive and have the right people you know barking for you because the you know the the rule in the institutional world and particularly when you get into the national cancer institute and stuff and it's it's kind of a cute statement is you know i i first the the guys who are making the decisions about whether they fund i first fund myself i then fund my students i then fund my friends and if there's any money left over you may get something and yeah. i can tell you that's pretty much accurate and true from my personal experience so Anyhow. You mentioned uh, the importance of chronomodulated um, chemotherapy. And the last time I visited you, which was 20 years ago or so, uh, you were talking about that. And my memory, correct me if I'm wrong, is that chronomodulated chemotherapy actually is fairly common in some parts of Europe, but almost unknown in the United States. That was my last update on it. Uh, where, how do you use it today? Why does it make a difference? And are we making any progress because it's so powerful and in terms of quality of life and the ability to stay well as you receive uh, targeted uh, chronomodulated chemotherapy? 
So, you know, for, for the audience that doesn't know, chronotherapy or chronomodulated chemotherapy um, started off uh, um, by one gentleman uh, that ended up running research um, out of VA hospitals in the U.S. It was his idea. Um, uh, his name is uh, Dr. William Reshevsky, and uh, Bill um worked within VA hospitals, first did uh, enormously difficult work. This is pre-computer uh, era on with mice. Um, as you may or may not, may not appreciate, mice are running around your kitchen when you're asleep and you're running around the kitchen when they're asleep. And so after all that data was done with different uh, cancer drugs and stuff to determine what was the optimal window on a 24-hour clock, when's the drug the most effective and when is it the least toxic? Um, they had to take all that data and flip it um, because of the mouse versus human issue. And then they had to rerun all of these studies. And these studies um, actually um, grew in the chemo window. And the VA hospitals pretty much ran out of money um, in the early 2000s. And so a lot of our targeted drugs we don't have. But we do have because of one of the students of Reshevsky's went back to Europe and he did some really brilliant work um, with immunotherapies as well. So we know pretty much the chemotherapy world and the immunotherapy world, how to time these drugs. But it's not just what time of day or night a drug is given. It's also the style of the infusion. So um, the style of the infusion uh, the analogy I'll use is, is uh, frogs and boiling water. You drop frogs in boiling water, they jump to save their skin. You drop cancer cells in a pool of high concentrated chemotherapy, they shut their pores, they congregate, and they go to sleep. They go dormant to save their skin. What the routine is in cancer care is to give a bolus dose all at once or a high concentration drip. Cancer cells aren't stupid. They do just what I said. They close and they go dormant. What we do instead is we start with a tiny trickle of drug. And as we give that little bit of drug, it actually agitates cells. And they start gobbling drug at 40 to 100 times the rate of a normal cell. One bite normal cell, 40 to 100 with the cancer cell. One bite and what we do is we slowly ratchet up. We use special technology, special pumps to deliver the drug, and we ratchet it up, 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 up in that same sinusoidal curve that actually, you know, you might argue that frogs in boiling water, um, you know, Hughes and he has a terrible analogy, but but it works. You can kind of get the idea. It so happens that we get somewhere as much as a eighty percent drop in adverse effects. I have patients, I have two almost identical colon cancer stu studies, uh, stories, um, both East Coast patients um, in major cancer centers. Um, one could not tolerate drugs any longer, uh, had a relative as an oncologist and agreed, stop and put him in hospice. The other one, the therapy completely failed the patient. Both came to us. I show slides sometimes with one of them jogging on a treadmill on his last cycle of treatment in complete remission with no evidence of disease. The other one 
we actually had one recurrence about two years later. Um, this is a, a 2007 diagnosis um, and uh, fully uh, um, got him into, with no evidence of disease, recurred, got him back into no evidence of disease again. And he's been fine now um, for whatever that is, uh, approximately you know, 15 plus years. Uh, you know, with it. And so we know that it cuts toxicity in a major way. Um, I actually have a study attached here. It improves treatment response, treatment outcome. But fascinatingly, we can re-challenge patients with the same drugs and the same doses that failed the patient previously and give them back. And 50% of the time, the literature says, this is not just my experience, the patients will respond, um, and they'll respond terrifically uh, to it. Um, the top of, of this is the sinusoidal curve of the infusion, and we use these very special pumps um, with a considerable amount of uh, complexity in terms of technology. Uh, the whole staff, everybody has to be on the same page, the pharmacist tubing the works to be able to do it. You won't be able to see this very well here. Um, I'll kind of read it to you. This is an ovarian cancer study. Um, metastatic ovarian cancer trial, and uh, these patients um, had a 50% reduction in complications when the drugs were given at the right time and in the right style of infusion. They had an 80% reduction in the need to reduce the dose. So what's relevant about that is that we know that when cancer patients have to reduce their doses, it's well-documented, patients do far, far worse. And so this is demonstrating that Chrono allowed the patients to maintain optimal dosing. But what was really impressive, impress, impressive is this number here. These patients, their five-year survivals, four times as many patients were alive that received the chronotherapy versus the group that did not. So just extraordinary, just extraordinary. So uh, there's so many things we can cover, Keith, and I will continue to bring my parts in. But as we hit the, uh, the top of the hour with a half hour left for questions, I want to bring in a number. Deb Kohan, our friend and colleague, a physician, extraordinary uh, a physician, says, I'd love to hear Dr. Block's opinion about Nasha Winter's metabolic approach to cancer that encourages relatively high-fat keto diet uh, versus what you just said about uh, less than 20%. So I, I know it's sometimes hard to talk about other practitioners, but uh, is there any comment that you can make on uh, her approach? I won't comment about her or her approach. Yeah. Um, I will comment on uh, keto. Um I mentioned terrain earlier, uh, this microenvironment that cancer cells reside in. And I kind of want you to know that um, we know that mitogens drive growth. Um, sugar, white flour, nicotine, alcohol, emotional distress, sleep disruption, etc. We also know that mutagens drive growth, damage to DNA. Um, and we all have damage to DNA. There's research uh, out of the National Cancer Database uh, where a rather large couple million Americans were followed uh, 
with uh, extraordinary uh, detail in terms of uh, analyzing everything, including their lifestyle habits and eating patterns and everything else. And they found that the patients that had saturated fat um, intake, that was approximately um, uh, the top third of that patient population that they were analyzing, had a 45% to 50% increase in mortality the middle group was the middle group the lower group was a group that mostly ate a diet that was either vegan uh pescatarian vegan um kind of leaning away from meats poultry and dairy products um in many cases completely and that population dropped mortality by 65% or greater. So you have 115% difference going up 45 or 50% versus coming down 65 plus percent. I would also argue that there's several different studies that have been done that really are in the face of keto diets. But I'll be careful to acknowledge scientifically, you can take ketones, You can take beta-hydroxybutyrate. You can take supplements and compounds. And there is uh, preclinical research, animal research, that shows that in at least uh, some studies, uh, giving ketones, not changing the diet, actually does have a therapeutic effect. I would agree with the biggest concern that I think is why there are patients who seem to do better uh, temporarily or, you know, or with certain cancers, um, blocking glycemia, uh, controlling hyperinsulinemia is a very significant factor. Um, and most of the time when people have shifted their diets uh, toward a more high protein and high fat diet, they've done it with a strong goal of trying to con- contain uh, hyperinsulinemia and glycemia, um, kind of a Warburg effect. And that biology is quite impressive and significant. And I, I think that there is um, a role for containment and control uh, from uh, from this regard. Uh, I, I do. Um, and, and I think that there may be a, a role with ketone uh, bodies and taking it in a healthy way. But I don't think that you can eat a diet that's high in saturated fat, there's considerable evidence um, in the face of, uh, uh, you know, doing a a high animal protein, uh, particularly high saturated fat, you know, based diet. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Keith Block and host Michael Lerner. So let me go to the most basic question. Uh, Imagine someone on a limited income, uh, but they have a real sense of agency and they want to know what they can do at home. Let's just say for a solid tumor, breast, prostate, colon, ovarian, whatever. And they they want to know what your basic rules of thumb are for uh, the priorities that a person who may not be able to come to your center, may not be able to afford a consult, but what are the basic priorities that you would want uh, patients with solid tumors to know 
to move in that direction to take an integrative approach to care. Um, honestly, without sounding like I'm trying to um, sell books, um, Life Over Cancer will cover um, right. really the core issues that I think uh, um, and that we as a full team here think um, is essential to getting kind of the right foundation in place. Um, and that foundation is uh, really an optimal diet. It is unquestionably maintaining muscle. Um, if you become Hercules, you do not get a better immune system. But if you atrophy, you do lose your immune system. So we exercise patients, whether they're, um, in fact, we kind of really push patients right before they get uh, chemotherapy bags or any kind of cancer uh, you know, drugs hung, um, that they become very active uh, in this regard. And we keep those patients active um, while they're getting treated. Uh, I don't have the photo in front of me at this point, but I have a rollerblader uh, patient of ours that um, used to we'd hook a fanny pack onto her with her chemotherapy running, um, and she would go rollerblading uh, around the lake uh, near uh, Northwestern, if you know Evanston at all. Um, this other, you know, kind of piece of this, besides muscle maintenance and aerobic competence, um, is, you know, a full foundation of uh, managing uh, kind of biobehavioral care uh, and sleep and circadian health and getting that foundation right. And along with that, getting that uh, metabolic environment. So it is cancer fighting and not cancer promoting. But even then I am, you know, of the very strong opinion that we have to still multi-target the intracellular, um, glitches that occur, um, normally in us. I'm not even dealing with kind of genetic, uh, glitches, uh, in terms of mutations, but, um, there is uh, a great deal of uh, work that we have been doing um, that demonstrates that you can influence um, these uh, mutagenic uh, ac actions that actually drive uh, cell proliferation uh, in quite dramatic ways. And so uh, we've got, you know, a couple of patients uh, right now that have been under our care for several years now. They both were in trials um, when they, uh, finally came to us, uh, the trials, um, you know, virtually once the patients fail a trial and it's all bad language because a trial fails a patient, patients don't fail trials. And uh, these patients came under our care in both situations. Uh, one of them, about 150 patients in the trial, the other one, uh, well over 400 uh, patients in the trial. They're the only two patients still alive. Um, there's not a single patient in either of those trials still alive uh, with it. And so I think we're missing the boat of how important getting this foundation is, that it's not just nice. It's not just about feeling better and living better. It's really very deeply about these things play a major role in getting better. And then when you put that all together, you know, with it, we still need innovation, right? Whether it's chronotherapy, whether it's the hyperbaric uh, oxygen therapy that we use here with patients to counter adverse effects, but also to augment um, uh, cell sensitivity uh, to drugs, um, whether it is uh, repurposed drugs, off-label drugs, 
not just a kitchen sink approach, um, which is sort of throwing, uh, you know, drugs at a patient because they may have this mechanism or that mechanism, but rather deep analysis of what are their bullseyes, what are the unique bullseyes that are driving their disease that we can go after, and then methodically, uh, selectively, uh, specifically to that patient, uh, multi-targeting. And uh, at least uh, our preliminary uh, work in this regard is eye-popping. Uh, it's really basketball-sized goosebumps, and it's quite quite exciting about what you know, maybe possible. At the same time that I say that there is really awesome things going on around the planet um, in terms of cancer work that I think is going to break in the next uh, three, four to 12 years. And I think it will transform this disease completely the way that we see it. And some of it is really exceptionally brilliant minds that have put together some of it is really just a light bulb that went off in somebody at the right moment and they were able to pull you know the team together to really uh, kind of move things forward uh, i think many of you are probably you know aware of the plant enzyme and the uh, uh, two uh, plant uh, biologists that got nobel prizes in 2020 in october 2020 um, for crispr uh, and this plant enzyme that will edit our DNA. Um, Walter Isaacson wrote a book called The Code Breaker uh, about the senior uh, one of them and just uh, how uh, extraordinary you know, this is and what the potential you know, really is for us as a population uh, when these kinds of uh, scientific breakthroughs are used for good purposes. Uh, I'm going to ask Laura Paul, my colleague and oncology nurse and researcher, to join us online here. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge there are quite a few uh, detailed questions about what information you keep in your database, how uh, to decide what supplements to take. I what well, I would refer people to your book, Life Over Cancer, for a lot of the detailed information. And I would refer people to Commonweal to your website. Uh, having participated a bit in getting uh, it together, there's really a, a, a amazing, uh, wonderful, uh, considerably valuable information uh, on that website. Well, thank you so much, Keith. We're very honored by that. We have 10,000 hours of work into it, yeah. and we, uh, cancerchoices.org, our uh, database of supplements on, uh, and and uh, repurposed drugs and things like that um, is very considerable and growing. Uh, Laura, uh, as we begin to close, do you have a key question for Keith or comment that you'd like to ask? Yes, uh, Keith, I wanted to ask you about novel, and some of this is not so novel anymore, but testing. For instance, in your book, you talk quite a bit about chemosensitivity testing. We find that a lot of patients get it done and then their oncologists won't pay attention to the results, at least not if this is early stage and there are some uh, protocols that they have to use first. Could you comment on testing and where you all are with that and what sort of testing you do? I, I'll point out that um, there are a lot of 
new chemosensitivity types of approaches popping up all over the globe. But I would give credit uh, to Robert Nagurney, uh, a dear friend, uh, and initial, initially just a colleague. Uh, uh, I was very interested in chemosensitivity testing um, in their early days. Um, and uh, his partner at that time, Larry Weisenthal, um, and uh, they both uh, evolved a model. Um, it had some rough beginnings uh, because of some knowledge that uh, we didn't have scientifically at the time between, you know, whether you should be doing a, um, a um, an assay, a laboratory assay to look at, uh, you know, apoptosis, uh, program cell death, um, or look at, you know, blocking cell birth, uh, anti-proliferative assays. Um, but um, I have had such impressive results um, with, uh, um, and I, um, just because of a long-term friendship and stuff, I'm very uh, much uh, involved with Robert um, and his center. I, I did, I have a bias. It's not a, a disclosure, though. I, I wrote the forward to his book uh, because I have had patients that came to us, sometimes four or five courses of different chemo, unsuccessful. And then sent, you know, fresh, fresh uh, tissue to him and implemented the regimens and completely nailed it. I mean, just jaw-dropping, jaw uh, really impressive uh, with it. Um, and his data, he, I think, would claim at least some of the early published data that he has about a 200% um, better uh, chance of a doctor pulling the right drugs than the way we physicians use population statistics to determine a, you know, a regimen. So I, I'm a real fan uh, of this and um, do have a, a strong bias, but I, I do respect and have been looking at a bunch of the newer types of technology that are coming out. Um, and some of them have some early data that looks very promising. And um, I would only kind of give a heads up to patients that you can't do most chemosensitivity testing after the surgery. It has to be planned preoperative so that patients have the kits in hand and their doctors, their surgeons actually brought it to the operating room or you carried it yourself there um, and that you have the uh, um, logistics all laid out so that you can, you know, these things often have to be packed in ice and overnight it and arrive not on a Friday afternoon, you know, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm I'm a real fan. Yeah, great. And if there's time, I, I'd like to uh, ask a little more about the chronomodulated chemo. I know you have consulted with a few people who um, didn't come to your clinic, but they were starting chemo and they had some suggestions um, what time of day to take their chemo and such. How have you seen conventional clinics, be if they're pushed, be able to successfully do this to some degree? No. No, and, and the reason is that the first thing is that I um, believe a lot of the literature on chrono is in places um, unfavorable and controversial because patients get the drug at the right time or the right window, but they don't get it based on a sinusoidal wave curve. 
And that difference is mm-hmm. quite significant in terms of what happens with patients. Uh, we have some examples where patients actually uh, received their drugs at the right time um, and it didn't work. And then they came here and we did the same thing over again, but this time we did it in, in, in full uh, using, uh, you know, a, 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 a the pumps that allow for the right. administration and delivery to be, you know, uh, optimized and mm-hmm. uh, completely different results with patients. Um, I have a fascinating story of a patient that uh, during the pandemic is a, a patient who's been under our care now for um, uh, over eight years uh, with a very uh, aggressive pancreatic cancer and adenocarcinoma pancreas uh, with extensive uh, metastatic disease. Um, And uh, this patient uh, knew about us and came to us up front, uh, has done everything, you know, kind of to the letter. And we've been able to completely contain her disease up until um, kind of a, a well, you know, without giving away too much, um, during the beginning of the pandemic uh, in the United States, um, uh, people couldn't fly out of uh, certain locations, and she was unable to fly. Um, we had had her stable on the same exact regimen, which we still have her on today. My colleagues say that's not possible. We have never developed resistance with her. Now, we do give her certain IV nutritional and oral agents as well as chronomodulation. Um, mm-hmm. And we also give her you know, some off-label drugs and stuff, all aimed at you know, keeping these drugs sensitive. She's never developed resistance. When she went home, we arranged same drugs, same dosing, but virtually nothing other than the oral agents that we could send with her. Um, she wasn't able to get anything else. She was bedridden between her Fulfirinox regimen um, for 12 days out of every 14. And the only two days that she was out of her house was when she was at the clinic getting the chemos. Um, several weeks went by before they were able to fly again. She was ready to quit chemo. And as she said, um, she was ready to you know, accept whatever happened to her you know, uh, from a, 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 a life-saving perspective uh, because the same drugs and the same doses made her that ill. She mm. came back here from the very first cycle we started her back on. She's totally fine. Wow. Yeah. And um, she has, you know, I mean, she, talk about travel, you know, for, for you know, that's an extensive travel to Chicago virtually every two weeks uh, for mm. essentially two days uh, of care. So, Well, thank you. Under our love. As we enter our last, thank you, Laura. And as we enter our, our last 10 minutes, uh, I want to go to the larger questions that you and I have faced for many, many years. You mentioned that you have not been able to get significant research money uh, from the government. Um, and also uh, in prior conversations, I know that um, the whole system of reimbursement for your clinic and uh, so forth, uh, in terms of the cost of chemotherapy drugs, many there are many factors that make it difficult for you to sustain this work. And um, I just want to reflect together on why it is that there is so much evidence, not just from you or me, but from Wayne Jonas and all kinds of other people who have devoted their lives to this, that integrative or whole person cancer care 
well done, improves quality of life, increases time to recurrence, extends life in so many cases. It offers so much. And yet in the face of a great deal of science and a great deal of clinical experience, uh, it is very hard to get beyond the kind of integrative care light models where a few feel-good things are offered, uh, but there is no real integration of the very skillful use of conventional therapies because there's a lot of overtreatment as well. You know, uh, the skillful use of conventional therapies, the kind of work Mark Renneker does, our colleague, in helping people find, you know, medically sound uh, 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 cancer therapies that are not part of the standard of care, but nonetheless have, have, are doing dramatically good work, both in different parts of the country and around the world. So there is a level of, um, I don't know if I'd say frustration or dumbfoundedness or what, what word we would use, that here a whole community of us have devoted 40 years or more to developing a body of work and yet, um, at the level at which it really makes a difference, it's very hard to move that out to more cancer patients. What are your reflections on the state of the effort to make integrative or whole person care accessible to a much wider range of uh, people with cancer? You know, it's so interesting that, you know, as you're talking, I'm flashing on centers in your backyard, in my backyard, in uh, the southwestern United States, in the northeastern United States, that are funded centers um, that, in my experience and observation, are totally disconnected, even though they you might have to walk through the parking lot to find them, but they're right alongside the hospital they're funded to be working with the hospital, and yet um, there's no crosstalk whatsoever. Um, the you know equally surprising to me, um, Mark is you know creating uh, with his patient advocate um, population, you know a group of doctors who can do you know in. The future moving ahead what mark has been doing for several decades which is totally extraordinary work as you and i both have observed and witnessed but when i have put out feelers for several years trying to find physicians that want to do what i do that i could train they either don't exist or the ones that come in don't have a work ethic or don't have the commitment of you know this area which is you know uh, i mean it, it's more than a full-time job uh, you you have to pretty much embrace and live it you know to really get good at it because it is complex and it is significant but i believe very strongly that um we need conferences, we need, uh, you know, and, and unfortunately, many of the societies that do set up um, are carrying the same burden that 
these centers that get set up, um, you know, without mentioning names and said some centers, they're allowed to use vitamin D in a, in a mushroom. And that, that's the extent of the supplementation that they do. Um, some centers, you know, do some, you know, soft uh, uh, music uh, therapy and, you know, uh, a few other, you know, kind of areas of meditation. I'm not knocking those as therapies. Please hear me. But the lack of diving in and really committing to something that has such profound effects on people's lives and quality of life, let alone quantity of life, let alone buying the edge that can get them over the hurdle and actually reverse a disease um, is extraordinary to me. And it's extraordinary to me that you and I could know each other since I believe it was like 1985. And we are having the same conversation we were having then. And the institutional world has been able to, in many ways, prevent the evolution of this and to incorporate it. And um, and I'm sorry to say this, but I actually believe I'm better off growing our operation as almost independent centers in different locations, as opposed to trying to go into a hospital and deal with, you know, all of the different boards that, you know, say, no, no, we can't do that. No, no, we can't do that. And, um, and, and don't respect the, the, the knowledge and the experience that I believe it takes to really get these kinds of results. Uh, well, as we come to a close here, Keith, um, I just want to express, uh, the depth of, um, uh, the debt that we owe to you and your research and your clinical work, uh, the partnership that we've had with you, and Mark Renneker, and many other colleagues that came together for many years at Commonweal and continue to be in touch with each other. Um, this is God's work, um, and it's um, it's it's a blessing um, that you have led so much of it for so many decades and uh, we just couldn't be more grateful to you for your partnership and colleagueship and uh, may we continue the struggle and hold the vision that because it is true that integrative or whole person cancer care improves quality of life improves the terrain improves time to recurrence, improves survival, prevents recurrence. Uh, because these things are true, I want to believe that someday uh, it will be widely available and that our community will continue to advocate and do the work until it is. So I just thank you so much for being with us today at Cancer Choices and at the New School at Commonweal. Well, amen. And thank you, Michael, and for all of the work that you have done over the years and the extraordinary organization. And I, I can't even uh, imagine how many people have gone through the Commonwealth Self-Help you know, program and um, have seen you know, many of those patients over the years. And uh, it's really profound and wonderful to um almost recognize a language 
that you and Commonweal and I think those of us who have been so fortunate to be able to be involved in uh, such a community uh, have uh, really experienced and witnessed. Thank you, Keith. And now I'll turn it back over to Kira Epstein. Thanks, Michael. And thank you, Keith, and also Laura. Uh, just, just a remarkable conversation and will be a wonderful resource for our communities when we get the recordings posted. And as a reminder, we if you want to rewatch or share this conversation, or if you follow the new school feeds on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, you'll be notified when the recordings are posted. And uh, one more reminder that we have a whole series of Cancer Choices co-presented conversations, and you can find them all on our media sites. Thank you so much, all of you, for being with us at the New School of Commonwealth today, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Keith Block and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening. When I go down, down to the water, by the water, I feel home. Water could feel my body.